Scripture lesson for this morning comes to us from the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 20. It should be 23, my, my fault. 19 through 23. Listen now for God's word to you. When it was evening on that day, Easter day, the first day of the week, and the doors of the house where the disciples had met were locked for fear of the Jewish authorities, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. This is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thanks be to God. So we are continuing our Eastertide sermon series here this morning that I have called Appeared. And I've called it that because we're looking at the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. Um, and most of these appearances that we're going to be looking at come to us from the Gospel of John. Uh, John has the most prolonged section of post-Easter appearances of Jesus, post-resurrection uh, appearances of Jesus. And in my opinion, it's one of the most beautiful parts of his gospel. I love all of these stories of the risen and living Jesus showing up in these unexpected places and unexpected ways. Um, it's a really great reminder to us that uh, the end of the story didn't happen on the cross, didn't happen with Peter's denial, uh, didn't happen with the attempts of empire to silence the things that Jesus was talking about, but the, the God of life and love and justice and peace and all of those things is still active in our world, and the risen and living one continues to show up for us. And Gretchen got us started last week with that story of Mary Magdalene outside the tomb on, the, on Easter morning. And Mary gets up while it's still dark, makes her way to the place where Jesus was buried, and when she gets there, she discovers that the, that the stone has been rolled away. And her first reaction is not, oh, Jesus has been raised from the dead. Happy Easter, everybody. Her first reaction is, well, somebody has stolen the body. And it causes her considerable amounts of grief. And so she sits outside the tomb weeping. And as she's crying there, she, a man approaches her and they start to have a conversation and she thinks it's the gardener. And, but then she realizes that it's Jesus who's speaking to her. Risen and living rabbi is speaking to her once again. And she runs back to the disciples and she says, she gives that first Easter sermon in history, I have seen the Lord. Uh, it's the first Easter proclamation in history. And we don't really know how the disciples reacted to that message, what effect it had on them. It, it seems to have had very little effect on them, hearing this good news of Easter, because now we enter into the story on Easter evening, just as Mary showed up when it was dark, now the shadows are starting to creep in once again, and, and the disciples have locked the door to the house because they are afraid. And it's usually at this point in the story that I kind of come down a little hard on the disciples. How is it that they could be afraid? Don't they believe the things that Mary has said to them? Don't they believe the good news of Easter? But of course, all of us have the benefit of foresight. All of us have had 2,000 years of church history and numerous Easter celebrations over the course of our lives. We know what this story is all about. But maybe we can give the disciples a little bit of a break because, of course, they're afraid. They were sitting with Jesus not just a few days before this, standing around, sitting around eating a Passover meal. When, um, and then they go out to the garden and suddenly the, the guards come. This mob comes and takes Jesus and arrests him. And there's this miscarriage of justice and then Jesus is crucified. 
And those forces that crucified Jesus are still walking around in the world. And what's more, they're still in Jerusalem. They're Galileans and they have thick accents and there's the risk that that accent will give them away just as it did Peter standing in the, the courtyard of the high priest. So the disciples have turned the deadbolts, drawn the shades, and are hiding themselves away in fear. That fear seems to be in surplus these days, that there is a lot that can make us afraid. And now fear, of course, is not necessarily a bad thing. Fear is actually a really, it can be a really good thing. It's one of those biological and psychological responses that allows us to recognize that there is danger and that there is risk in front of us. It's a, it's a thing that helps us to preserve our own lives. Uh, we even see it in the biblical narrative that when Adam and Eve eat the, the fruit from the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil and they become more aware of their existence, they run and they hide. And as God is walking through the garden, God says, where are you, Adam and Eve? And they said, we hid ourselves away because we were naked. There's this understanding that as they become more aware of themselves, there is vulnerability and there is risk in the world around them, so they take steps to protect themselves. The good side of fear. I've learned that fear is a really good thing as a parent of young children. Um, Nora is at this age now where everything is to be explored, um, everything is interesting, and, and Heather and I want to, to foster that as much as we possibly can. We want her to explore her environment. But within reason, there are boundaries to that, right? There's a reason why we put baby gates on the stairs, why we lock the door where the, the, the cabinet door where the bleach and all the chemicals are. It's fear. It's wanting to protect the life of our daughter. It's kind of funny listening to Axel. We went through this, of course, with Axel, but now he's starting to understand that things should be afraid of and starting to understand danger and risk. So like this past week, he asked me, we had this scented candle lit in our living room. He goes, what happens if you knock the candle over? And I said, well, a fire might start and the house might burn down. Oh, okay, I won't do that then. <laughs> good choice, yes. He was rewarded for that choice. It's a really very good choice. Um, and the interesting thing to me about fear is that uh, we all have different reactions to it. Um, that's, there's a reason why Hollywood continues to produce this genre of movies called horror movies. That some people really like the, the feeling of being afraid, and I don't particularly enjoy that. Um, whenever a horror movie trailer comes onto TV, I always usually change the channel. I don't enjoy those. My sister-in-law does. She really is a big fan of horror movies. And I asked her, why do you enjoy these movies? She said, I like the feeling of adrenaline that comes from it. Fear is a good thing. We have different reactions to fear. It's one of those ways that we preserve our lives. But as with all of the good gifts of God... Fear can also be distorted. There can be this negative side of fear. It can run kind of off the rails a little bit. Uh, we all know about phobias, those irrational or um, extreme versions of fear of things. And I, I found some interesting phobias recently. Uh, there's something called syngenesophobia, which is a fear I think a lot of us get during the holiday season. It's the fear of relatives. There's xemophobia, which is the fear of the great mole rat, which is not real um, and something I'd never heard of before. Uh, there's anatodiaphobia, which is the fear of being watched by a duck. And then there is pantherophobia, which is the fear of your mother-in-law. None of us have that fear, right? Um, Maybe, yes, maybe, Eli. Some of us do have a fear of our mother-in-law. I do like horror books. You do like horror books. That's good. Well, I'm going to let you read all of those on your own. Um, 
When I was really little, like a lot of little kids, I was afraid of uh, severe weather. You know, I grew up in the Midwest, and severe weather would roll in. And um, I remember I had these distinct memories of the sirens going off and having to hide in the basement and being very much afraid. And, um, but it kind of became irrational at a certain point where um, even one dark cloud in the sky would start to make me afraid. Of course, I've grown and I've changed since then, and, um, but in some ways, I, I'm still a little wary of the weather, still a little wary of severe weather when it comes uh, rolling in. Uh, many of you probably have heard that most people are more afraid of public speaking than they are of dying. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld, the comedian Jerry Seinfeld, said that means at a funeral, you're better off in the casket than you are giving the eulogy. Fear seems to be all around us. It's uh, one of those common places in our lives that that good gift of God that was meant to be for our survival seems to kind of sometimes run off the rails. And I think for for most of us, the sorts of fears that we live with are not these sort of extreme examples of phobias, but these sort of these these lower level, these kind of subtle sorts uh, sorts of fears. And, and fear can be this really powerful motivator to get people to do things. You know, you're, you're afraid of your parents' reactions to things, and so you, you act in a certain way that maybe is not in accordance with your values or who you want to be. Even as we move into adulthood, we have that fear there. There's a fear of repercussions from our bosses, and so we act in a certain way. And of course, religion has, been, has seized on the power of fear throughout history, especially Christianity, drawing from this idea of eternal hellfire and damnation, that if we don't act in a certain way or say a certain prayer or go to church a certain amount of times, that that there's this fear that God's going to punish us. And I think that's a really gross misuse of fear, turning the God of love and mercy and compassion into a God that we should be afraid of because we'll be cast from God's presence for all eternity. Of course, we, uh, there's a, in our national discourse, there is a lot of conversations around fear. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt was famous for that statement, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, which is a great soundbite, right? But I think that there's probably more for us to fear than just being afraid. You know, we have lived through this great time in our own history, this, this three-year time that is finally sort of ended where we were very much afraid for our own health and our own well-being, living through a pandemic. And I say that not because I think that a lot of us are still afraid, but I think there is this kind of residual effect of fear that continues on with us even now. I think especially for those who are dealing with health issues, chronic health issues, there is this feeling, this feeling of fear, that fear seems to be all around us. And of course, our, our politicians... Uh, love to seize on the power of fear, right? Vote for me and not my opponent, and otherwise America as we know it will all come crumbling down. Uh, sometimes who we're supposed to fear, what we're supposed to fear is not what, but who. Be afraid of the one who is not like you. Be afraid of the single mother who is taking welfare. Be afraid of the one on the southern border. Be afraid of the others around you. It's about who we're supposed to fear. And of course, we all have these much even, even more subtle fears. Um, I've shared with you all before, I think I've shared this with you all before, I'm a recovering perfectionist, um, and my family is helping me on that path of recovering because I'm not perfect ever. Um, I'm very much afraid of making mistakes. That failure, failure to me is a really difficult thing. And uh, I remember a few years ago, uh, ESPN put out this documentary about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls. Um, it was really fun to watch this kind of feeling of nostalgia thinking back to my childhood in the 1990s when uh, the Bulls were seeming to, seeming to win every single... You're laughing because I was a child in the 1990s. <laughs> um, the Bulls were seeming to win every single year, right? Um, and Michael Jordan, who is hailed as the greatest basketball player of all time, and 
he actually was cut from his high school basketball team. And that failure motivated him to become who he was, who he became. And it may had me thinking back to my days of playing basketball in, in uh, junior high and in high school. And um, I spent a lot of time practicing and working on my skills. And, but when it came time for the game, I was so afraid, paralyzed with fear of making a mistake. And when you're playing a sport and you're worried about not making a mistake, you know what you're actually not doing? You're not actually playing the game. Fear seems to paralyze, to hold us captive. I think for many of us, as we get older, we don't necessarily fear what lies on the other side of this life, but we fear losing the things that we're used to doing, fear losing our independence, the things that we um, enjoy. I think for many of us, we also uh, fear that we are not worthy of the love that we deserve, and so we endure relationships that perhaps we should not endure. Um, We uh, are afraid, I think, sometimes of the unknown. The unknown can be an incredibly scary thing. Uh, There is a a story about a king who had a a prisoner brought before him to receive punishment, and the the king said to the prisoner, he said, you can either take the rope and be hanged, or you you can take what's behind the big, dark, scary door. And immediately the prisoner said, I'll take the rope. And as the rope was being fitted around his neck, he said, just said to the king, just out of curiosity, what's behind the big, dark, scary door? And the king said, you know, it's funny, no, one has ever, no one's ever taken the big, dark, scary door. It seems that they would rather take the rope than face the unknown. Freedom is what is behind the big, dark, scary door. Um, fear seems to be in surplus these days. There is so much for us to be afraid of. And it can paralyze us, it can hold us captive. And that is exactly where we find the disciples here this morning. And we can understand why they are afraid. Their fear is justifiable. The forces of Good Friday still linger in the world around them. And so they have turned the lock to the house, turned the lock to the door, and drawn the shades and trying to live with this tenuous sense of safety. But there in that place where fear has paralyzed them, the risen and living Jesus shows up. He doesn't even unlock the door first. He just shows up in this place where these disciples are living with great fear. And he doesn't deny their experience. He doesn't say to them, oh, you shouldn't be afraid. He doesn't minimize it. I think sometimes when we're afraid, whatever the level of fear, whether it's something real or perceived or big or small, The expectation, the prayer to God is that God would make us fearless, that God would remove the fear. But I think if we're waiting for that to happen, I think we're going to be waiting for a long time. What Jesus does for these disciples is he doesn't remove their fear, but he stands in the midst of them and he says, peace be with you. He speaks that word of peace amidst all of that which makes them afraid. The solution to being afraid to fear is not fearlessness or the removal of fear. It is courage. It is the ability to walk through that which makes us afraid. Mark Twain was quoted as saying that that, uh, courage is not the uh, elimination of fear. It is the mastery and resistance to fear. And Madeline L'Engle was once quoted as saying is that Uh, The promise is not that God will stop bad things from happening. The promise is that I am with you now until the end of time. That's the promise, right? The promise is that the risen and living Jesus shows up for us and continues to make appearances in our lives, especially in those places where we are afraid, 
where we want to turn the, door, the lock to the door and, and hide ourselves away, that is where the risen and living Jesus shows up and speaks that word of peace to us, that word of courage to us, that the things around us that are, might make us afraid are never going to go away, but we can have the courage to face them. It's that word of peace that Jesus speaks to his disciples that, that allows us to face that fear we might have a failure of doing the wrong thing. It's that, that word of peace that Jesus speaks to us that, that allows us to have courage when we are afraid of what the future holds, when there is a, a great amount of uncertainty. It is that word of peace that Jesus speaks to us when we are afraid of those we might call the other and helps move us from the other into being a neighbor. That word of peace gives us courage to face a world that so often can make us afraid. Now, I want to be a little bit of a realist here. I want to make, put a little caveat to all of this. It takes a little bit of a time for courage to set in. It's not automatic. One of the things I notice as we move through these stories where, where Jesus shows up for the disciples in the Gospel of John is that he has to keep showing up again and again. Like next week, he's going to show up again and the door is still locked. Um, it takes a little bit of time for courage to set in. But the promise is that the risen and living Jesus keeps on showing up behind those locked doors, giving us courage to face that which makes us afraid. Because here's the truth. The locked doors that we hide behind in fear are little more than a, a stone sitting in front of a tomb. And we know what God does with stones that sit in front of tombs. Thanks be to God. Amen.